Welcome to the S2 Cognition Podcast. S2 is the official cognitive evaluation in sports, from youth to pro, where athletes and coaches build to win. Today we are talking about cognition and football with the legendary Tommy Moffitt, the former head strength and conditioning coach for LSU football, a man that has been around such successful teams for much of his illustrious career. We talked so long with Tommy, we had to break it up into two episodes, so stay tuned. After this release, we will also have an, a bonus episode with Coach Moffitt. And in this, we're going to uh, talk through his legacy, his coaching tree, people that followed him, the coaches he was under, the humble beginnings of S2 Cognition, and when he saw real value in this evaluation, and talking through that and how he saw his coaches pull value away from the evaluation and its findings. All of that and plenty more here next on the S2 Cognition Podcast. Okay, so we got Tommy Moffat here. I want to get into your pedigree here a little bit. I think this is true. Uh, you're like the godfather of strength and conditioning. So you, your tree, you're, you're like a, your coaching tree from a strength and conditioning perspective is unbelievable. I'd like, to, I'd like for you to talk about that. But also, is it true that you have been a college uh, strength and conditioning coach for 25 years and every team that you've been a part of has made a bowl game? Yeah, so... Um... If you count the semifinal uh, game against Oklahoma and the national championship game, I went, um, me, my wife, and uh, the boys, uh, you know, went to 26 consecutive bowl games. So uh, that was incredible, you know. And uh, in 2020, when we didn't get to go to the bowl game, I was devastated. Uh, for that, you know, I was devastated for a lot of reasons, but it was something that my family looked forward to each year was, hey, where are we going this year? What's the hotel going to be like? You know, so, yeah, incredibly blessed that we got to go to 26 consecutive bowl games and countless uh, SEC championships and Sugar Bowls. Um uh, Went to a bunch of Sugar Bowls. In fact, won all three national championships in New Orleans. How crazy is that? Oh, that's wild. Yeah, yeah. Played for and won all three national championships. And then played Illinois and Notre Dame uh, in Sugar Bowls as well. So had some great postseason success in the New Orleans Superdome. So have you received any calls from a college or NFL coach since you left LSU? Yeah, uh yeah, so the morning after, so um, I got fired on a Friday, and, uh, you know, I was laying in bed. First, my phone started ringing at, like, 6 in the morning, and uh, I answered it, and it was a friend of mine uh, that um, offered me a job first thing Saturday morning, um, and then you know, there's, there's been others. And there was one job in particular that I was really interested in. Uh, but uh, I, I didn't get that job because the person that was going to leave chose to stay. Um, but, you know, at the time, uh, I was reluctant to accept the job because I had a lot of 
un, kind of unanswered questions. And, you know, when you've been at a particular place for as long as we had, and, you know, I had two sons that graduated from Catholic high and graduated from LSU, you know, there was a lot of, uh, there was a lot of emotions and things that I wanted to work out that my family needed to work out. And then there were some, I had a lot of questions about what went wrong and what happened. And I wanted to sort all of that out. And I honestly didn't feel like I would have done my employer uh, any good by taking a job someplace because I still had a lot of questions that I needed to answer and to make sure that, you know, the stuff that we were doing was right. And, um, and so I didn't, I didn't take those jobs. I would have taken one of the jobs, but it just didn't work out. And that was later. That was, you know, that was like, uh, that was long after signing date that was in February. Uh, so I had kind of, you know, hunted enough and slept, you know, slept enough and, and done enough that I was ready to take the job, but it just didn't work out. When Brandon first called you about S2 and all the things they were going to start measuring and objectively looking at and trying to give results to coaches, what were your thoughts when that first call came through? First of all, I try. I, I wanted to know how he got my number, and uh, <laughs> so yeah. So he talked about what he had been doing, and you know, it's really cool when a former athlete um, calls you. You know, whether they called you to ask you about career advice or, you know, just to shoot the the breeze about some of the things. You know, just funny stories or whatever. But to have him call me and ask me if I was uh, if I was interested in this project they were working on, uh, I was flattered by the opportunity and, you know, just listening. And so at the time when Brandon did call, there was it was a period in strength and conditioning where there was a lot of stuff in athletics where there was a lot of stuff going on. Uh, there was, uh, you know, technology, uh, you know, the latest and the greatest came across your computer screen every day. Uh, so I was interested in it. And we were going through this, this a similar process with a lot of other products. So Brandon, um, he kind of like uh, was kind of beating around the bush about coming down to the school and wanting to test our athletes. And I said, absolutely, man, tell me what I got to do. And so, you know, we talked, I don't know, Brandon, how many times we talked a few times back and forth about it. And uh, I didn't even mention it to the coaching staff. I set it all up. Um, you know, we had room at the time in the weight room and I thought it would be a great place to do it. And so we scheduled our players and I'm, he said it was going to be tough. It was a tough test. It would take an hour. It was, you know, computer based, but I didn't know how tough it was. Uh, <laughs> you know, the guys, you know, I would go up there, you could hear the guys breathing hard and panting and, you know, sighing while they were taking. It was pretty neat. Uh, and then the neatest thing was, though, is the first time that I looked at the report, I was like, you know, this it was spot on. Uh, and that was early in the development of the product. 
but you could tell uh, based on my knowledge after, you know, coaching the guy three or four years and some of the remarks and scores that I saw on the test, I knew that they were spot on. So it was pretty neat. Yeah, do you remember the coach's reaction? Yeah. So, well, just like with any new technology, the first time coaches see it, they kind of roll their eyes and like, why do I need this? You know, um, and, you know, and some coaches are really excited about the data and then other coaches are intimidated by the data because you're telling that coach things that he should already know or he thinks he knows or and, you know, in recruiting. And, you know, the NC2A doesn't allow a lot of exposure to the players, whether they're on your campus for a camp or you're at their school for um, a school visit or you're at their house. You still don't get I mean, coaches fall in love with what they see on film. And a lot of it has to do with their physical attributes, their 40, their vertical jump their broad jump, their bench squat, and, you know, how well they tackle or their hands. So it's all these physical attributes. But the thing that you can't see on film, if what little film that you got and some of the high school film is bad, you can't see what's going on inside the head. And a lot of – now, high school offenses have changed, but it's nowhere – some of your better high school programs are – very similar to what's going on in college, but the players are all slower. The rosters aren't stacked like they are in college. And there's a lot of, and you know, there's not a hundred thousand fans in the stadium. So there's a lot going on upstairs that you can't see. And they fall in love with the physical, but then when they start, you know, dealing with this up there, you know, it can be frustrating to a college coach. And that's what S2 has done. So take me through that, you know, now you've seen the data, you've seen the testing, you've understood what it means and how the coaches react to it. How, how could you see it then moving forward, integrating into LSU's system and, and processes? Yeah. So, you know, and that was, and that was a slow process early on because you had to get buy-in and it was the same thing with GPS data what you have to do is find coaches on the staff that are interested in that type of data. And um, I remember uh, Brandon and I standing on the football field with uh, during one of our pro days, and we were talking amongst a group of NFL coaches and the old line coach from the Patriots. uh, He said to the group, whether or not, you like analytics, they're here, and you're either going to choose to use them or not. But at some point in your career, you're going to come face to face with somebody who is taking advantage of it, and they're going to beat you. And that's the message. I took his message, and that was the message that I gave to each of our assistant coaches. And then you get one assistant coach in, then you get another assistant coach in, and then gradually, before you know it, the um, the it gains momentum on the staff, and more and more people trust the data because, you know, at first glance, it's there, and the reports have gotten much more clear cut now. Y'all, uh, you know, a lot of the data has shrunk to where it's it's. Uh, 
it's more user friendly. It's just like anything else. And the coaches now at a glance can understand the data much more than in the early days where they had to read through the entire report. You had all the numbers and the charts and the graphs. And it, you know, if, if you're a coach and if you're data driven and if you're smart enough that you can understand that and your ego isn't so big that you're willing to take the advice of someone else, then it's valuable data and you're going to buy into it. And that's what has happened. And now, so, and I'm not there, but, you know, Jack, from what I understand, Jack Marucci is really helping Coach Kelly a lot with S2 and all the data. And that's great for Jack uh, because Jack was, without Jack's help, we would never be in the position that we are today. Yeah. It's interesting, Tommy, that I remember because we had been in there for a good two or three years. I think we started with LSU in 2013 or 2014. But that 2016 season, there was a little bump in the road, uh, I think, towards the end of the year. And I remember getting calls about Dion Jones uh, and they just didn't know how to use him. They, they, they weren't using him, frankly. I mean, I think he maybe no. played two games his entire career and he was a junior. Uh, and it was one of those things where they were really afraid to put him in the middle of the field, I think because of his size, essentially. Right. But, but, yeah. but Duke could process things like you would not believe. And Coach Chavis, I think, at the time was, was struggling a little bit on, on that and Jalen Mills as well. Uh, and we had talked, just talked through some things about where these guys would have the most success. And it was one of those really cool moments for us because the next year, Dion started playing middle linebacker. Turns out he's all American, you know, sixth round draft pick for the Falcons. Same thing with Jalen Mills. And so that's where sort of I think the real tie in with LSU and the real buy in with LSU was. I think when you say they need to have no ego, I think it's that or they need to get at a point where they're like, okay, I need help. I don't, you know, because a lot of these guys are like, man, I've been doing this for 25 years. I've got it all figured out. But when things don't go right, then it becomes, hey, can give me some more information, give me some data, give me some help. Yeah, because coaches are locked in again on the physical attributes and because of a player of his his size uh, and his speed. And, you know, they try to force players based on and, – and I can remember coaches, I've heard him say it a thousand times, this guy runs like so-and-so. This guy catches the ball like so-and-so. This guy is going to be just like this other guy, except all three of those guys, although they look physically identical almost and run and jump and can catch, but their brains are completely different. And again, it's something you can't see it until you you're you put set that ego aside or like you said you have no other choice but to believe in the data because if you don't play this guy you're not going to win the game and you know now so before you know if you had a two receiver set a tight end and a couple guys in the backfield there wasn't a whole lot going on out there but now when you have five receiver sets and you have a tight end that can line up, split out wide. He can, or and then he can motion and put his hand on the ground, or stand in the backfield as an H, 
or you have a running back like Clyde Edwards-Hilaire that can motion out of the backfield and line up as a slot receiver. When you have all this stuff going on now, you've got to have guys in the center of the field, your quarterback, your center, your Mike linebacker, and a safety that can see all of that stuff and make the adjustments, communicate it to everybody. And because it's no huddle, things are happening like this. Now in football, you don't have times for guys to sit back there and make all of these calls and all these signals. Stuff is happening so fast. you got to be able to make those decisions in a split second and then Hopefully, everybody understands what's going on right before the ball is snapped. Right. That's exactly right. And that's why Jalen Mills was successful. And that's the same way with Dion. Everybody is sitting around trying to figure out why Dion wasn't in the game. And Brandon, I think I remember you calling me one time and saying, Why isn't Dion Jones playing in the game? <laughs> And I was like, I don't know. Everybody is saying, why is it Dion in the game? But he, I mean, he made an incredible difference. And then he also had the same character and toughness. And Yeah. I mean, he was a good kid. I mean, when you score above 90 on our evaluation and you're generally athletic, you should be getting some playing time. But yeah, now here's a kid that would, I mean, he would go have lunch with us. He would walk back with us too. You know, we would go down and have lunch and he would hang with us and come back. I mean, just a really nice guy, really character guy. Yeah. And you can, you can tell he's, that's one of the reasons why he's so successful. I was going to ask you about the speed of the game. You talked about it, right? It's, it's that jump from high school to college and even at the sec, then another jump in pro, but the speed of, of the college game is so fast. So why does cognition matter when you look at how fast the game is? Yeah, so, you know, a couple of the things, uh, one, and, you know, it, w- one of the things that I think people overlook a lot is just distraction control because there's so much. Like if you go to Alabama and they've got the lights flashing and the bands are playing and the crowd and all, they have all of these, there's so much going on that has nothing to do with what's actually taking place on the game uh, or on the field. So, and then you have guys running in and all, uh, you know, running from the sideline between every play, you've got guys subbing in and out based on formations. There's a coach up here that's calling down to the field and the players are looking over at the sideline, waiting on the calls. So back in the old days, you could sit and see who's motioning in and out. But now the players looking at the sidelines, waiting for the coach to make the call. And then so the coach signals it in, they yell it out, they turn around, and the ball snapped in some instances. And so you have to be able to process that information. So you got to have great distraction control. And then with all the, the motioning back and forth, you got to be able to sort all that stuff out because nobody is standing still. And, you know, they'll kind of motion and they'll hop and they'll skip a little bit and they'll faint and come back the other direction. And then the ball is snapped. And then, you know, your secondary is rolling up and down and moving in and out and sorting it all out. It's just a lot of stuff that's going on. And, and then you go to Florida and you have the 
it's just like in Alabama now with all these LED lights and the light shows that are going on and the bands being piped in over the sound system. If you're not locked in and you're going to struggle, it's so different than high school. It's not even remotely the same. Yeah. Some of your highest S2 scores since we've been at LSU, we mentioned Dion, Trey White, Jamal Adams, yeah. Joe Burrow, yeah. Justin Jefferson, Grant Delpit, Clyde, Patrick Queen, Dave, well, Damian Lewis, all, all that 2019, really. I, yeah. I should just cover it with the 2019 championship team. Do you see this yeah. translation with high cognition and your guys being so successful at the next level? Yes. Yeah, so you and you see it in the weight room. You know, we've had guys on our team that, you know, because everything is sped up, you know, because now you have, you know, in addition, in the old days, you just had strength and conditioning during the off season. But now you have football drills thrown in there. You have all these academic appointments that they have to make. They got to go do rehab. And you have a guy, if we've had guys that I've had and our coaching staff would have to explain the snatch grip warm-up every day that they come in the weight room. And and those guys, if they struggle in the weight room and they can't, you know, most guys, you like Trey White. You show we showed Trey White the snatch grip warm-up one time. And then so there'd be a group in Trey's Trey, there'd be a kid in Trey's group, and Trey would say, come on, man. Coach has shown you that 10 times. What are you doing? Where's your mind at? <laughs> and so those type of players are more successful in the classroom. They're more successful in the weight room, and they're going to be more successful on the field. And, and the way the practice week goes, you know, a lot of people don't understand that you have 20 hours of work throughout the week to prepare and play the game. And so, you know, with a lot of the coaches, you know, because it's all, you know, on offense, especially there's a lot of formations and, you know, a team will run the same play out of four or five different formations. And so it's a lot of information that they throw at you to get you distracted away from what they're really doing, you know, and it's, again, it's the same play. It's just a different formation or a different motion and they change it up each week. So these same players that struggle in the weight room after you show them the snatch grip warm up and then they go and do something totally different, then that same player has got to go to a meeting where our defensive back coach, Corey Raymond would be ripping through film. You know, showing as many cuts of their formations as fast as he possibly could. And the kid is struggling in the meeting. And then he goes out to practice and there's stuff going on because you have limited time in the meeting room. You have limited time on the practice field. And there's just not enough time sometimes to be able to teach, especially if the guy's in the wrong position. You know, or you're asking a player to do something that he can't do. And, you know, and I think, uh, Brandon, uh, you told me this story one time that you and Scott, and this is when y'all were still practicing, um, 
you know, your, your day jobs at Vanderbilt and y'all would be sitting around watching athletics and you would say, you know, your question was, why did that guy miss that ball? And then, you know, you guys came to understand that it, he didn't miss it. He didn't even see the ball. You put guys in position on a, in the field and you ask them to do things that they're, they're not capable of doing. And with S2, you're, you, you know, not, you just don't throw the kid away. You, you put him in, you put him in positions and you practice those things he's not good at, or you don't ask him to do something that he's not capable of doing. And, you know, now Jack is taking it so far as, you know, deciding, you know, which eye is the dominant eye of our receivers. And so he takes the S2 data and the stuff that he's learned from the eyes about where you line your players up in formation on the field because he's, you know, if you throw the ball over the left shoulder, he catches the ball 98% of the time. And if you throw the ball over the right shoulder, he catches the ball 43% of the time. Yeah. That 2019 team was the first time that we had a, a huge sort of synergy going on with uh, using the data to inform how to use the player. Now, again, as Harrison pointed out, you had a lot of studs, you know, cognitive studs on that yeah. team. So it wasn't real hard. But, you know, when 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 Jack would call and, and we would talk through some of the visuals and some of the search efficiency and some of the tracking and, and, and he was like, hey, guys, we're actually improving catch rates by 14, maybe 19 percent just by changing the way we we run routes with these kids based on the data. It was like, oh, wow, okay, we're actually making a difference. Or, hey, you know, we're only going to use this kid on third and long because that's where his skill set is. It made it really cool because not only was LSU having success, but the kid was having success, right? right. I mean, the kid was right. the kid was like, okay, I'm being valued here. I've got a role. I'm doing something and contributing Whereas before this, I was getting yelled at all the time when getting any playing time because I couldn't do what they were asking. Now I'm doing exactly what they're asking because we kind of understood what the kid could do. Right. You know, I heard Mike Tomlin. I heard a um, I heard a comment the other day. Mike Tomlin was on Ryan Clark's uh, show, and he said a lot of times, you know, coaches would say this kid isn't coachable. You can't coach this kid. He can't learn. But really, it's the coach that can't coach the kid because he's not willing to do the things that he has to do in order for this young man to have success right. or young woman because it's not all football based. Right. So, uh, yeah, you are exactly right. And that's the thing. That's why we're in the business to begin with, for the kids to have success. Right. Tommy, do you remember my uh, first trip down? We were still testing in the weight room. Um, there's a kid. You said, hey, anytime the weight, the back half of the weight room is off limits, anytime that somebody comes back here, you just let me know. And I was like, sure, I'll, I'll tell I'll tell Coach Moffitt. So, you know, an hour goes by. We get that first group in and lo and behold, somebody's putting, you know, 600 pounds on the leg press machine and throwing weight around with guys testing next to him. So I was like, you know, I, this is not an ideal environment. So I go get you. 
<laughs> I'd love for you to take the story from there if yeah. you remember it. Yeah. Well, first of all, he wasn't even an athlete. He was just, you know, he was part of our family. And he is. He's just pounding the weights over there. So I'm I'm not. And, you know, I think I even put signs on yeah. the doors and all, you know, like testing in progress. Please be quiet. And a couple racks. And, uh, yeah, just chill. And so I don't remember exactly what I said. But I got my message across that, you know, <laughs> can't you read? <laughs> Actually, the first the first year we went down to LSU, you guys put us in the room behind the team meeting room. Yeah. And yeah. There, there, were re- there were recruits coming through every hour. And Coach Miles would play this hype video on the hour every hour. And it happened to coincidence right when we would start. And the music was so loud, and you could hear Tiger Stadium, and kids are trying to take the test. It was wild, man. Yeah. And, you know, so early on, and here's how, you know, technology, this is the way things went. If you, if I would have asked them for permission to do that, they would have said, what are we doing that for? You know, and I grew up, you know, it's always better to ask for forgiveness than it was for permission. And so that's why we had some of those snafus like we did, but you know, yeah, it was funny. Y'all were like, you know, they're playing this loud music. And I was like, ah, can't do anything about that. Yeah, we had some growing pains back in the day. But, you know, uh, one of the things uh, that I remember, uh, you know, we, you know, the company was young, uh, the technology was young, and I was young. But I remember the time, uh, and I don't know whose ideal it was, but where, you know, right before uh, training camp, we would always test late in July. And here's, this was the moment for Jack and everybody where they really understood the significance of the data and that it was reliable and repeatable. When we tested the entire squad uh, before they broke and everybody had a week off and then we brought the team back and then we had a group of walk-ons that had taken the test that were not allowed to go through training camp. And then uh, we retested, if you remember, we retested the front seven on defense, the offensive linemen, and all of the special teams players. And then you, we retested all the walk-ons when they came back. So you had a group that, you know, went through two-day practices every day and got physical contact. Then you had the, the specialists who went through training camp twice a day, but received no contact. And then you had that control group that sat at home for a month and just ran and lifted weights and did not go through training camp. And so when we had that bit of data, we were able to show the administration, we were able to show everybody in sports medicine and everybody on the entire staff that this data is real. Like this is not, you know, you know, just a bunch of numbers and charts and graphs. And this is tangible data that we're able to use. And I don't remember what year that was that we did that, but I remember for me, 
or not necessarily for me, but for everyone that was involved, it was a turning point uh, for the data. Yeah, that oh, I, I want to say it was 2015 or 2016, but that that was huge for us on a number of different fr- fronts. And I think also for LSU and the way you guys approached camp, Yeah, because right. we also had at that time, Jack had developed the little technology in the helmet that he could right. capture the specific location and the number of G's that these kids were taking in their, in their helmets, uh, every day. And yeah, so we had linemen and linebackers in one group, punters and kickers, special teams on the other group, and then the walk-ons and the walk-ons and the punters and kickers, their scores didn't change at all. I mean, we're talking maybe 3% one way or the other and the linemen and linebackers, the majority of their score stayed the same, but all of the the cognitive processing that happens in the frontal lobe, so distraction control, impulse control, improvisation, it deteriorated. It went down by about 14%. So not only were we showing reliability and validity over time, and, and ultimately we ended up testing those kids a lot. We tested them once a year. We tested them every three weeks just to look at the validity and the test retest reliability, but also if I'm not mistaken, you guys changed the way that camp went moving forward. Exactly. So these these linemen and linebackers weren't taking as many blows. Because uh, when you think about a 14% decrease in frontal lobe functioning, I mean, now you're starting to affect things like, you know, sleep. Um, you're, you're talking about academic performance, you know, uh, all of those sorts of things to sort of take into consideration. So, yeah, that was pretty big. That was pretty big for us. So, Tommy, what are you up to now, my friend? Uh. Ooh, a lot, honestly. Um, you know, I never imagined uh, that uh, my coaching career would have ended the way that it did. I always thought that, you know, I would coach long enough that I would just ride off into the sunset and, you know, go to, you know, go sit on five acres in Middle Tennessee somewhere or something like that. So it was evident. Uh, the way 2020 went and then the way we started the season in 2021 that changes had to be made uh, across the board. And you could just tell by the way um, things were going, the way people communicated with you, um, you know, they put a freeze you know, on purchasing and, you know, there was just changes being made and I understand why uh that they were going to make changes so i started thinking about what my next move was and i mean i still want to coach uh i don't want to not coach and hopefully this time next year you know i'm coaching for somebody that would be cool um but if i'm not i'm not going to sit around because i'm young uh, so i have been working you know, hard since, uh, since I got fired on developing a couple of ideas that I have, uh, thought about for quite some time. And so I am working with a group of, um, coaches and investors on developing. We have two different things that we're working really more than that. 
um, we have three to four different things that we're working on. And I'm really still, you know, not comfortable saying because I think they're great ideas and I don't want to give anybody else my idea. <laughs> Smart man. Uh, yeah. So uh, I feel really good about it. We had a great meeting yesterday, uh, uh, you know, with uh, our group. And, you know, the main thing is, especially we would have probably we would be up and running right now if the economy wasn't the way it is. Um, and so there's some indecision about, you know, the depth by which we proceed versus just going all in. So we're trying to narrow down our scope right now. Uh, but I feel good about that part of it. Uh, so I work, you know, the physical part of my job isn't what it used to be, but mentally I'm involved. I took uh, what was once Aaron's bedroom upstairs. I turned into my office and you know, there's days I've spent 10 or 12 hours up here, you know, working feverishly. And so, you know, with business plans and schematics and flow charts and all types of stuff. And I'm texting Brandon stuff all the time. And, <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I'm excited about that aspect of it. Uh, I ride my bike every day. Um, you know, I'm putting out you know, 16 to 18 miles a day on my bike. Ooh, yeah. Uh, lifting, uh, working. My hands are all busted up uh, from just, you know, chainsaws, axes. You can take the boy out of Tennessee, but you can't take the Tennessee That's right. out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm not one to sit around, you know. Um, yeah, I'll binge watch a few shows every once in a while, you know, looking forward to Yellowstone coming back home. But uh, <laughs> I tell you something that was tough, man, is the college baseball season was great this year. Um, and I love the LSU Tigers. Uh, so when they got put out, man, that was tough. Uh, but we're still cheering, you know, for the SEC. Uh, got some big game, got a big game today. Um, so just watching college baseball, man, hunting, been doing a lot of hunting again, you know, killed some massive pigs. I hunted a lot of whitetail, uh, in January and February. Uh, we've run out of just about everything that we put up in the freezer. Uh, we, we try to put up some of these hogs that we kill are so big you can't eat them, but I process all the meat myself. Um, now it's fishing season, gas prices, gas prices are high right now, man. So it's tough to go offshore, you know, 120, 140 miles, you know, and blow through three or 400 gallons of gas, you know, on a big fishing trip. So we haven't been fishing yet, but <clears throat> I can see us going before the summer's up, but really I'm j enjoying life, Harrison, really enjoying life. Uh, I have you know, I have a really good plan about what I want to do from this point on. But the main thing is I'm enjoying life and spending time with Jill. Uh, she's about ready to kick me out of the house. Uh, and those days she's like, just go outside, leave me alone. Or, 
you know, but uh, I've gotten to go home. I've been home a few times. I'm going to go home again. You know, just taking life easy, man, and just seeing what's next. That's right. We um we end this podcast with and, and the guest with three funny and random questions. So these have been selected for you, and you have no idea what's coming. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Right. <laughs> uh oh. Uh oh. Which guys that you coached had the biggest personalities? Trey White. Probably Trey White is one that had a and, and y'all know Trey. Y'all know how uh exuberant he is. Uh Jay Graham, when I was at the University of Tennessee, Jay Graham was a guy. <laughs> I've got a, I've got quite a few uh, oh, Jay Graham uh, van stories to different meets <laughs> in the southeast for sure. Hey, we had a strength coach. I'm not going to nickname. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to name who he was, but he had this tattoo on his calf, and we were in the weight room one day, and it was serious. I mean, we were pounding the weights, and Jay goes, "Hey, man, what's that tattoo on your calf?" And uh, the guy goes, it's a bear claw. And Jay's like, a bear claw? That looks like a duck beetle palatifus. <laughs> this guy, you know, just out of nowhere, he starts cracking on this guy. I thought, I thought the string coach was going to cry. Jay got him so bad. So I'd say probably Trey White, Jay Graham, and Edrin James probably – just offhand are probably the three biggest personalities that I've coached. If I opened your fridge right now outside of some meat, what would I find? Oh, you're going to find probably 10 bottles of different kind of hot sauce. Big hot sauce guy. Um, I actually have a gallon of hot sauce from Robertson County, Tennessee. You know, um, Robertson County, it's um, it has some of the best pulled pork barbecue, and you can't find barbecue sauce anywhere else in the world. So I actually have a gallon of Robertson County barbecue sauce. So you'll find that um, you're not going to find any. Al- I, there's no alcohol in there. You know, something that I'm big on right now is watermelon juice. Uh, big watermelon juice guy, sweet tea. That's probably the thing that's going to shock you the most. All right. And uh, what has been your most bizarre life experience up to this point? Ooh, wow. Uh, most bizarre. Um, ooh. Well, some of them I can't say. Uh, <laughs> because some of them uh, I'd probably be liable in some way or another. Uh, so I got, so the most bizarre, I got robbed. I got robbed at gunpoint when I was, uh, in high school. Um, I was working at a market, uh, it's called Scott's market in Springfield. So I worked from 11 at night till seven in the morning on the weekends. And, uh, so a guy came in and asked, uh, first he asked to borrow money and, uh, I told him I didn't have any money. And then he asked me if I wanted to buy a pistol. And I said, no, I don't need to buy a pistol. So then he pulled it out and he robbed our store. So that's probably the most bizarre life experience I've ever had. Dude, that's wild. That I can tell. Yeah, I appreciate that. That's uh, it's Tommy Moffat, former LSU yeah. strength conditioning coach. He lived a lot of life, coached a lot of places. 
we appreciate your time today yeah. and we'll have to get uh, some torches when we're in Baton Rouge next absolutely thank you guys I appreciate I appreciate you and and I'm I'm honored to be on here really